My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. It is so good to be with you this morning. I was gone for the entirety of November, which was a combo of vacation with my family and spiritual retreat just to be with Jesus. And it was glorious. And there's a part of me that hopes you noticed I was gone. You know what I mean? That's a human... It's a real thing. And uh, I was loved, got back just in time for Advent, for the Advent season. And um, I feel really filled up, which is good because Colin called me yesterday and told me that he had lost his voice. And so hence the transition from leading worship to preaching. Don't feel bad for me. I grew up with a dad who preached and led worship every week, which he loves to remind me, you know, how he's like, you're so soft, son. Like, it's not that hard to do. So I'm feeling good. Lots in the tank. It's going to be good. It's going to be good. And it's Advent. And we know that that word Advent may feel foreign to some of us. The word Advent comes from the Latin Adventus, which means coming or arrival. And in our Christian faith, Advent is a season of looking back to the birth of Christ, his arrival into our world, and also looking ahead to the return of Christ, our hope. And, um, but the reality is, is that while we look back in remembrance and we look ahead in hope, we live in the now and what theologians call the in-between. And so this season of Advent, what we're doing as a church is we're inviting inviting you to come and see the wonder of Christ, to experience that in a fresh way with fresh eyes and, and open hearts. That word wonder is defined as a feeling of surprise mingled with admiration caused by something beautiful, unexpected, unfamiliar, or inexplicable. And to be human is to long for wonder. We feel this longing. We experience it in many ways. Wonder is currently for sale right now in this Christmas season. The phone you bought last year is absolute trash. And, and, and now there's a 13. You know what I mean? I went from an iPhone 6 to an iPhone 13 this year. And it has been wonderful. But we're, we're trying to sell wonder And um, one of the things that we do in our Christian faith is remind ourselves that wonder is not for sale. The true wonder is found in this story. And a story that, that, you know, many of us, whether you've been in church for a long time or not, many of us have have heard this story many times, but we, we long to awaken to the wonder of it. And even I want to encourage you this morning to, to pray to God that he would fill you with wonder and that he would open up our our hearts and our minds to the unexpected and inexplicable reality of his coming into our world. And so I want to invite you this morning to turn turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. I think that one of the ways that we, that we, we ought to experience scripture is with the sense of obedience and even submission to it. And so I'm going to invite you to stand this morning for the reading of scripture. Um, This is from, what we'll read today is we'll read from Luke chapter 2, and then we'll turn to Luke chapter 23. So in Luke 2, we will read the account of the birth of Christ, and also we will read the account of his death. 
And before I read this passage, what I want to do is I want to give you the big idea of what's going to happen today. And the big idea is this. The wonder of Christmas is that God became a human being. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to explore that and we're going to see that in the scriptures and we're going to see it around these three themes of vulnerability, identification, and salvation. Okay, are you ready? Luke chapter two. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. We pick up the story near the very end after the death of Jesus in Luke chapter 23, verses 50. It says, now there was a man named Joseph, different Joseph. There was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea and he was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. And this is God's word. You can be seated. The wonder of Christmas is that God became a human being. And the first theme we're going to look at today around that big idea is this theme of vulnerability. The vulnerability of Christ. The gospel writer Luke is committed as he writes his, this biography of the life of Christ to ensure that Jesus, the son of God, was a real human being. He ensures that his reader encounters that reality. And perhaps you noticed in our reading that at the beginning of the gospel, we are told that while the conception of Jesus was a divine miracle, his birth was normal. His birth was human. And twice in our Luke 2 passage, we, we read and we are told that this baby, the savior of the world, was wrapped in swaddling cloth. And that that was the sign for the shepherds. You know, we talk about the Christmas story, we talk about the glory, we talk about like the heavenly 
singing, but the sign for them was human. It was normal. The sign was a baby wrapped up, not quite as glorious as we often make it seem. The beginning of Christ, uh, the beginning of the life of Christ, he's swaddled. And I think this just sort of slips by us. But it doesn't slip by me because I'm a young dad. And I want to tell you a story. So it is not hard for me to conjure up memories of my three children in their birth. My, my oldest son, Judah, was born 11 years ago, almost 12. And I was very young. I was very much like mid-20s. And I was freaked out. Okay? I... Um, I remember being in, 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 the, in the birthing room when he was born and feeling like I wish I had something to contribute here. Like, like I contributed to um, the pregnancy. I, it's church, we can talk about this. I, I contributed to that, but once we got to the birth room, I was a non-contributor, okay? And every attempt I made to contribute something was like what's the uh, unappreciated by my wife and the entire medical staff involved. And shortly after Judah was born, I, I learned of something that I could contribute and I became obsessed with it, swaddling. And so what happened was after the birth, like a, a nurse came and said, like, here's how you swaddle. I was like, I'd never heard of this thing. I was, again, I was really young. I was like, I, I didn't know this was the thing. And so she taught it to me in like 10 seconds and walked out of the room, you know, which is like malpractice, I think. Like she's just gone. And like, there's a button on the bed. that's like an emergency button. And I hit the button and the nurses came back in ready to save someone's life. And I was like, so is it folding and then tucking and then the double and... And it took a long time, but I perfected it because it was something I could contribute because with each of the, the birth of each of my kids, you realize that, that this act of swaddling, maybe not for all, but for mine, it comforted them. It gave them warmth and a feeling of security. It also stopped them from crying at times. And, and isn't it weird that we would let that, that reality of Jesus kind of slip by in the Christmas season? How could we let that slip by, that Jesus is swaddled, that his parents responded to his birth by swaddling him? Because he's human. So Luke's gospel starts that way. And then did you notice how his gospel, as it nears its end, after the death of Jesus, after the brutal and inhumane murder of God's own son, we are told this, that his naked body, which had been beaten, killed, that it was wrapped once again, not in swaddling cloths, but in linen. And the reason was, was because it was shameful to be buried naked. And Joseph of Arimathea wanted to preserve even just a little bit of the human dignity of the life of Jesus. And so he wrapped him in linen. Because the gospel writers want us to know that Jesus Christ, God's son, became vulnerable. And, and the most vulnerable moments in life, aren't they, birth and death. And Jesus experienced them in fullness. 
The reformer Martin Luther said it this way, no other God have I but thee, born in a manger, died on a tree. And so the reality of the humanity of Jesus, it slips by us often. And I think in other ways, the humanity of Jesus is something that we edit out of the story often, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. So why do we edit that part out of the story? I'll give it to you in one word, heresy. I'm serious, it's Christmas. We're gonna talk about heresy for a minute. So here, here's what's true. And I thought that was funnier than you did. Okay, so the... the <laughs> over. The divinity of Jesus has come under attack. And it's come under attack in what is referred to as liberal Protestantism. Okay? So movements have arisen out of liberal Protestantism, like the Jesus Seminar, which rose up sort of in the wake of liberal Protestantism of the 19th century. And the Jesus Seminar was a movement that came into popularity in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. In the bedrock of this movement that was talking about Jesus, the bedrock of it was scientific naturalism. And so the, like the bedrock belief is that there is no such thing as the supernatural. This is what these theologians and scholars like carried into this, this movement. And so the Jesus Seminar, it's this, this collection of New Testament scholars. And what they would do is they would get together and they would take every saying and every deed and every act in the life of Jesus recorded in the gospels and they'd put it up on like a whiteboard and they'd isolate them. And then they would vote on whether or not Jesus actually said or did those things. And it's weird, they would vote by putting like beads into, like different colored beads into like a jar. That's how they would cast their vote against 2000 years of Christian orthodoxy. And, um, and wouldn't you know, if the bedrock of this belief is that there's no such thing as the miraculous, I mean, there's really not much left of Jesus at the end of their sort of self-imposed criteria test regarding the life of Jesus. And so some of the statements made it through, things like, forgive your enemies made it through, but do you think that I am the way, the truth, and the life made it through? It didn't. None of the miracles of Jesus had a vote cast for them. In, supreme, in the supreme act of all the Christian faith, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Jesus got no votes. And so what happens with, with things like that that sort of rise, in, and maybe it's in the background a little bit, but it sort of rose in popularity in, um, in the 80s and 90s and the early 2000s. And so what has happened over the years is that in modern evangelical scholarship, there has been response to the Jesus Seminary and Seminar. And the primary response has been to elevate the divinity of Jesus because the Jesus Seminar was affirming the humanity of Jesus and denying the divinity of Jesus. Are you with me? Just a nod. Okay, so this is what was happening. And so the response was in Christianity, like we need to, um, in Orthodox Christianity, we'll put it that way, we need to elevate and defend the divinity of Jesus. But here's something that's interesting. In the first and second 
and third centuries, the church also dealt with heresy. And the debates around that were about the nature of Jesus, but in particular, it rose up about the humanity of Jesus. So again, our modern Western culture is increasingly secular, and so there's a propensity to deny the divinity of Jesus. But the cultures that the Bible was written into and around were not secular. And in fact, many of these cultures were what's called polytheistic, worshiping many gods. And Israel was an anomaly in the world in that it worshiped the one God, Yahweh. And so as the gospel began to spread, stay with me, as the gospel began to spread after the resurrection of Jesus into polytheistic cultures and nations, these nations would never ask the question, do you believe in God? They would ask the question, which God do you believe in? Which God do you worship? This is the question that they were asking. And I'm telling you that the most appalling and audacious claim that you could make in these polytheistic cultures is that a God had become human and identified with humanity and become vulnerable. And so the early church refuted the heresy that Jesus was not really human. There was a heresy that rose up. It was called docetism. And docetism was this belief that Jesus was fully God, but was pretending to be human. And so the early church fathers would gather together as they heard heresies like this, and they would kind of come to um, collaborate and to think together about what are the core essentials of our Christian faith. And so they would come together for these collaborations and what would come out of them are the creeds. So the Nicene Creed, which is, is a wonderful and amazing document, you ought to read it often in its entirety. But I want you to listen to these words that came out of the, the Nicene Creed, about, which affirms the divinity of Jesus, but also listen to what it says about him. It says, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. The early church fathers were defending the humanity of Jesus because they knew that there was no gospel if Jesus wasn't a real human. And again, the wonder of Christmas is that God became a human being. So this Jesus that we worship, he lived a fully orbed human life. Real emotions, real frustrations. He lived a life of vulnerability. He wasn't shielded or protected from any of the harsh elements and realities of our world. So why was he swaddled? Because he had to be. I love Away in a Manger. It's a wonderful song, but the little Lord Jesus crying, he did make. He actually did cry. And that's why they swaddled him because Jesus was vulnerable. Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus's family had to flee to Egypt because Herod was doing every single thing possible to kill the rumored newborn king. And so Jesus, hear me, became a refugee. And what's more vulnerable than that? 
And in his death, Jesus is wrapped in linens because his actual real human body had been shamefully ripped apart. And he was wrapped by a man who wanted to preserve, again, any human dignity that he had left. And so we are brought into, in the Christmas story, the frailty of Jesus, the historical and theological reality of his humanity. We, again, don't have a gospel if Jesus isn't a real human being. And so we start, as we consider the wonder of his humanity, we, we emphasize his vulnerability. We highlight it. We proclaim it. But I want us to ask this question for the rest of our time together. And the question is this, what does it mean? What does it mean that Jesus was human? Why do we need a human savior? What's up with that? And the New Testament expounds on this. Wouldn't you know? So will you turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter two? We've seen the vulnerability of Jesus and his humanity But now I want to talk about these two themes of identification and salvation as it relates to the humanity of Jesus. So Hebrews 2 is where we're turning. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews is a sermon that it comes to us like a letter. We read it like a letter, but most believe that it was a sermon that was preached, like written down, and then it was passed around and sent to various churches. And the letter Romans or the sermon Romans was this magnification of the power and supremacy of Christ our Lord. And it builds and it builds over the first two chapters. And at chapter two, it sort of coalesces with this statement in verse 17 that I'd love to read to you from verse 17 and 18. It says this, therefore he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Verse 17 in the Greek, it literally reads like this. It behooved him to be made like us in all things. Look at your neighbor and say, all things, all things. Behooved is a great word, isn't it? I use it as a parent because kids don't know what it means. It behooves you to go to bed. I don't know what it means, but it sounds authoritative. It behooved Christ to be made just like us. And the word is identification which is a theological word that I want to invite you to carry this week and and on throughout the season of, of Advent, the word identification. It behooved him to identify with us. Now that term identification is a term that's, uh, it's not just a theological term. It's a term that's used in rhetoric, like both in speech and in conversation. It's a term that's used in advertising And what it means is it means to build a connection with people between people that otherwise may have seemed distant or divided. I heard this theme of identification um, said this way. If you can imagine a politician comes to town, and I think we're a little bit out of the election cycle that that's not too triggering. Okay, let's go there. Imagine a politician comes to town 
in the, within the election sort of cycle and he's on the campaign trail or she's on the campaign trail. And this politician is running for an office. And so they travel to various parts of the state, let's say. So they travel to a rural part of the state and they give speeches in front of people. And what do they say? I'm just like you. I grew up on a farm. I know what it's like to wake up and start working before the sun has come up and and to end work after the sun has gone down. I'm just like you. And then the same politician goes to the inner city and says, I'm just like you to a new group of people. I know what it's like to grow up in a tough neighborhood. I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks. You see what I'm saying here? It's sort of, it's this rhetorical skill set that's used to identify a speaker with their audience. Some of you are in sales and you do this all the time. I was, I was in, when I was in college, I worked in the admissions office at Vanguard University. Um, it was one of like my first like, like big boy jobs, you know? And so I would get on the phone. <laughs> I would get on the phone all the time. I'd be on the, I'm like 19 years old. I'd be on the phone with like a mom or dad. And I'd be, and I would say this to them. They're like, I don't know. Like my, my daughter is, she's 17. She's lost. And I'm like, I was lost too. <laughs> Just two years ago. I had no clue what to do with my life. Vanguard accepted me to the university. I was lost, but I was found. You know what I mean? Like it's all these big statements. I'm just like you. Identification, it's a way to sort of create bonds. And it's not just manipulative, okay? It's a powerful thing. We have a wonderful ministry here at our church called Grief Share. Meets in the community room down the hall. And Grief Share is a ministry that is designed to create a safe space for people to process the death of a loved one, say a spouse or a parent or sibling or a child. And it's, it's an environment where people can come together, sit in a circle, tell stories, and people look and nod and say, I felt that too. I know what you're feeling. I know what that's like. What that is called is identification. And that is what Jesus has done in our world by identifying with us. He has become like us. And the question is, why? Why has he become like us? Well, verse 17 tells us of Hebrews 2, it says that he, Jesus, became a merciful and faithful high priest. And just two chapters later, we'll read this in a little bit, in in chapter 4, Jesus is referred to as the sympathetic High priest. So what's a high priest? The high priest was a human representative that mediated the relationship between God and his people, Israel. And so what the priest would do, would, the priest would make sacrifices on behalf of people for their sins. And Jesus, Hebrews tells us, came as a true high priest to be merciful and faithful and sympathetic But to become a sympathetic high priest, he had to live a fully human life. He had to completely and totally identify with us. So again, we say that Jesus lived a fully orbed human life, experiencing birth and puberty and hormones and awkwardness. He had to mature. 
The scriptures tell us that Jesus would often retreat from the crowds to be, to get alone, to be with his father, to receive encouragement. And the reason he did that was because he had to. He had to get away because he experienced the fullness of humanity. And so he would get away. Our passage tells us that Jesus was tempted. Does that make you feel uncomfortable? Makes me feel uncomfortable. Jesus was tempted. He wasn't shielded from any of the realities of human existence. Jesus has identified with us. And the reason that Jesus has identified with us, this is the difference between him and you and him and I. The reason that Jesus has identified with us is not to get something from us but to give something to us, his salvation. Jesus is identified with us, not to get something from us, but to get us, to redeem us. Theologian Mike Bird describes it this way. He says, the story of Jesus is the story of God becoming one of us and sharing in our humanity so that he might redeem humanity. That is why Jesus has identified with you. The Nicene Creed puts it this way, for us and for our salvation, he came down and was made human. So in this season, when we consider the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling cloths and the crucified Jesus wrapped in linen, we are witnessing the wonderful and perfect plan of God to redeem humanity by becoming human, by becoming vulnerable, by identifying with us to save us. Identification and salvation. This is our God. Can I get an amen? Let me press this further and I'll see if I get any more amens. Because this isn't really, this isn't just like a disembodied or merely historical truth. The wonder of Christmas is that God became a human being. But let me take that a little bit further. The wonder of Christmas is that in Jesus, God became a human being forever. Have you heard that before? God became a human being in Christ forever. Jesus was wrapped in linen after his death because he had actually died and shamefully died. But the spirit of God raised him to life, not, a dis, not as a disembodied spirit, but with a resurrected and glorified body. When he appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, they recognized him. Do you remember that part of the story? They recognized him. They saw scars in his hands and in his feet. And they walked with him and they ate with him. What is trying to be emphasized here is that Jesus' resurrected body was glorified and it was still human. And then he ascended bodily to the right hand of God where he sits on a throne as the world's true king, Jesus Christ, the eternal God-man. And the implications of this are massive. Let me just say it this way. Jesus has permanently and eternally identified with you permanently and eternally. 
There's a story in Acts where the, this, this man, Stephen, was being martyred. And he looked up and he could see into the heavens Jesus at the right hand of God and looked like the son of man. Jesus, not a disembodied spirit, but the eternal God man. When Paul encounters Jesus on the road and it changes his life, he encounters Jesus, the eternal and risen God man. Jesus has permanently and eternally identified with us. And what does that mean? It, it means not that he was sympathetic, but it means that he is currently sympathetic with us and our weakness. He continues to rule in the throne of heaven and look at his church and say, they are mine. We're told that he is able to help those who are being tempted. Even from the right hand of the throne of God, Jesus is able to help you in whatever tempts you. Hopelessness, despair, sin, lust, greed, pride. He can sympathize with you. Do you carry that truth in your life? What would it look like to carry that reality, not just in this season, but in every season? Jesus has been tempted. He was a human being. Let's do this. Let's do an experiment. By a show of hands, and I promise you this is a safe place, who in this room has ever been tempted? <laughs> Keep your hand up and look around. <laughs> Nod. This is called identification. It's a rhetorical device. I want to invite you right now to close your eyes, though. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. I invite you to close your eyes. Jesus Christ, the resurrected Son of God, sits on the throne of heaven. All authority, supremacy, and glory is his. Isn't it? Isn't he glorious? But you ought to know that his hand is raised because he has been tempted. And it's good for us to contemplate that reality when we gather in his name. He's sympathetic. There's no hopelessness that he cannot meet you in. He has permanently identified himself with you. He knows your frailty. It is not lost on him. Take a moment and sit in the wonder of Christ here in this room, in your homes. Consider that. He became like us to save us. But there is one difference and it's essential 
There's a difference between Christ and us. He was tempted in every way, but he never gave in. He was faithful and obedient in all things. And we were not. And that's why he can represent us and reconcile us to God. Hear these words as we close. This is from Hebrews chapter four, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. So, let us then draw confidently, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, because we will receive mercy, and we will find grace in our time in need. I want to invite you to to take out the elements this morning. Invite you as, as we take communion to just consider the wonder of the humanity of Jesus. Second Corinthians five tells us that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What a mystery, what a wonder. And this morning, we're, we're gonna take some time to, to comp, contemplate that. I'm gonna invite Evan to play for a minute. I'll make an awkward transition back to the singing stage. And, um, but let's not rush past this moment. This is our God. This is what he's done for us. He became like us to save us. As we sing this song, I invite you to take the elements and be reminded of who our Christ is. Amen.